Welcome back to Evening Dhamma. I was going to say we'd finished the Satipatthana Sutta, but I just realized we still have one section left. So I'm going to have to rename this one. I'm not ready to start into another sutta yet. So disregard the name of this video until I change it. I'm going to go over the... We're skipping it. We're skipping the last... Um, sections, the section on the truths, because well, I've just given talks on the Four Noble Truths, which I think really um, was, was still in context of mindfulness. But um, just to drive the point home, how it's connected is obviously the Four Noble Truths are the sum, summation or the um, summit of the practice they're the very peak of mindfulness practice so understand that the Four Noble Truths are are really what we come to at the end of the practice they're not something that we start off really reflecting upon uh, throughout the practice we get inklings and it starts to become clearer uh, it's considered to be preparatory insight and it's different in the sense that well we get a sense of the Four Noble Truths you get a sense of suffering obviously throughout the practice there's a lot of suffering although you, you, you realize that meditation can be quite unpleasant at times and you get a sense of the Second Noble Truth that hey it's not actually the meditation that's causing me suffering it's my desire, and meditation is showing me what happens when I don't get what I want, how that's suffering. And it shows you the cessation of suffering when you're actually mindful, when you don't cling, there's no suffering. It shows you the path, it shows you the mindfulness, and how mindfulness really does, along with the rest of the seven path factors, really does lead to freedom from suffering. But all of that isn't really the Noble Truths. Um, it's useful, and it, it makes study of the Four Noble Truths useful because it shows you the direction in which we're going. But it's at the very end of the practice where one realizes with, with pure, perfect clarity that, uh, hey, these things that I'm clinging to aren't worth clinging to. This craving is not, uh, is the cause of suffering. And that realization, it's not even intellectual, it's not even a thought. It's just this moment where you just get it. Nothing's worth clinging to and the mind lets go. You get it from seeing so clearly. And that's the moment of realizing the Four Noble Truths. Uh, but what's interesting, I think, for us is to talk about the the very last part of the sutta. So I think we can go over that. It's something that well, doesn't get talked about a lot, I think, but uh, let's see what the commentary has to say on it. So after explaining the four truths, the Buddha 
gives a summary. He says, if anyone develops the, the, the four satipatthana in this way, in the way that we've talked about, he, he assures that within seven years, practicing this for uh, sattvasani for seven years, one of two things. Either they'll become an arahant, means they'll have no more defilements left in them, or uh, they'll become an anagami, meaning they'll never re be reborn in earth or in heaven. They'll be born in pure abodes as gods, basically, to live out their lives there. And, and it's in a state that is so pure that one is able to very easily practice mindfulness. For some people it takes extra work. They're, they're very pure, but they still have this... They still have to let go of samsara, so... They'll spend a long time up in these heavens, perhaps observing samsara from above, really getting a sense of the totality of it, until they too finally let go. And then he says, but put aside seven years if someone does it for six years, five years, four years, three years, two years, one year, uh, six months, one month, one day. Does he say one day? No, seven days. Satahang. They do it for seven days. So what he's saying is seven years is really the, the, the maximum it'll take. And that means... Well, it depends how you interpret it, but uh, my teacher was saying, well, it means we'll give you a room for seven years, and we'll, we'll bring you food every day if you want to stay in your room and practice Satipatthana for seven years and, and see if it works. So it means very intensive practice. That seven years is really the longest it would take, but then he, now the Buddha says, well, you know, actually, if you're really being mindful, and that's really the problem, uh, and that's what we have to understand about the practice of mindfulness is that it's uh, it's not about how how many hours or days or weeks or years you've been practicing. It's about how many moments you've been mindful, and that's both a, a challenge and a, and a, an encouragement because every moment that you're mindful changes you, even if you are only doing some handful or a small number of, of, of moments of mindfulness while well, they count those moments change you they begin to cultivate this habit of mindfulness and by focusing on those moments as important you really get a sense of, of your own Buddhist the measure of your own Buddhist practice that you're not a Buddhist because you say you're a Buddhist or because you believe you're a Buddhist or believe in the Buddha not even a Buddhist because of rituals that you do. You're a Buddhist because of the, well, in one sense, you're you're this kind of Buddhist because of uh, how many moments you you're mindful. And if you're actually mindful for seven days worth of moments, then of course, I mean, it shouldn't even take that long. The problem is, and this is where we start out, that that's not really possible. 
In the beginning, our, our moments of mindfulness are few and far between, and we, and this is because they're competing with our, our many bad habits. You know, we have the habit of habits of clinging, habits of reacting, habits of ego and conceit and identifying and worrying and fearing and doubting when we deal with mindfulness when we when we um, look at the at reality from a meditative point of view we're really not dealing with views or ideas or beliefs or paths or religion you know we're dealing with with realities we're dealing with habits this is the language and the, the sort of the context in which we should understand it. So when we talk about things like doubt, when we talk about things like attachment, we're looking at them phenomenologically, is the word. We're looking at them as phenomena. And you have to understand that's, that's the outlook. I mean, it, it may not be... I mean, this will be warring inside of our inside of us. You know, much of who we are is based in a different kind of understanding. The idea of people, uh, the the reality of people, places, things, concepts. Buddhism is a way of looking at the world from a phenomenological. I mean, Buddhism isn't. There's many facets to Buddhism, but mindfulness, the path of mindfulness. Is looking at the world from a phenomenological point of view, where nothing's right or wrong exactly, but everything is is interdependent. Not to use that's kind of a that that term is way overused and used in the wrong context. But but what I by that I mean is just in terms of right and wrong, it's only cause and effect. You know, you you don't have to say that something's wrong. You just say it leads to suffering. And then it's up to the individual. And it, it, w the problem is a person uh, who wants to be happy can't say they're on the right path if what they're doing brings them suffering. If I say I want to be happy so I'm doing this thing that causes me suffering, clearly that's in some phenomenological way wrong. I mean, it's, it's not a views or a beliefs kind of wrong. It's wrong, it's just wrong. You're wrong. No, look, that's not leading you where you think it is. You're 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 contradicting yourself, right? So that's how right and wrong work from from this point of view. It's just a matter of un really knowing uh, where you go, and and there's a kind of a magic there as well that that's that's kind of strange in that we incline and in, we incline towards happiness and suffering. It's not a scientific, rational, third-person, independent of perspective sort of way. It's quite subjective in the sense that we don't want to suffer and we want happiness and the mind inclines naturally towards peace and happiness and inclines, inclines away from suffering. And the only reason that we're not always happy and, and that we have suffering it's not because that's the way the world is that 
the, the, the common view is, well, that's, that's life, right? In fact, some people say you gotta have the, you got to have the ups with the downs. If we didn't have suffering, we wouldn't know what happiness was, which you know, it's, a, it's an interesting but kind of uh, pessimistic outlook. Or, or people might say realistic, but it's not true. And the only reason that we suffer at all is because we don't understand that the things we think are causing us happiness are actually causing us suffering. We don't understand what it is that is causing suffering. It's a very powerful view and belief in itself. Uh, but it, it appears if you if you practice and look at the world phenomenologically where doubt is doubt and liking is liking and, and there's no baggage attached to them. It's not like, well, this liking is good and that liking is bad and so on. Right when we have religious views and and secular views and cultural views, when you take all that out and you just look at it, doubt is doubt, liking is liking, worry is worry, fear is fear, happiness is happiness, pain is pain. When you look at them and categorize them and see them as they are, there's. Uh, I don't know where I was going. The mind, the mind inclines away from uh, suffering and towards happiness. Anyway, lost my train of thought. So it's really this warring that goes on, and that's really what we're attempting to do: is change the paradigm, change the way we look at at the world. It's scary, and I think um, it's it's not going to be for everyone. Not, I, I mean, I think it is for everyone. I think some people are not going to be comfortable with that, and it's going to be a challenge. I think for most of us, uh, a challenge even to accept that well, that's the right way of looking at things. Which is another interesting point. The question is, what's the difference between looking at the world mindfully? Um, and looking at the world conceptually, and I've touched upon this, but the, the the to be clear, the difference conceptual knowledge and and awareness uh, is is dependent on phenomena. It's de dependent on the reality of phenomenological experience and and reality. So that our concepts uh, end up disappointing us And our expectations in regards to concepts are never really met Can never fully be met Until we understand phenomenological reality right? it, it, By chance we can meet good people We can get good food and good things and good experience we can have a good job and money and all this. This can happen by chance. But it can never happen because we will it to, because we because of our own understanding. Because it's not understanding. It's dependent on realities that we're not focusing on. This will become clear when we a little bit clearer, hopefully, when we talk about uh, the next sutta, which I'll get into Wednesday, I guess. 
was preparing to get into tonight, but I want to finish this one up. So I said I would, and there's actually not a lot in this last section, but here we go, the end of the Satipatthana Sutta. And a, and a good summary, I think. This is an important summary on the idea of mindfulness. There's no sutta that I can see that's more important than the Satipatthana Sutta. The the whole of the Buddhist teaching on sati, the sati, Satipatthana Sanyutta is another good section of the Sanyutta Nikaya. If anyone were to be interested in a part of the Tipitaka to read, I recommend reading that as well. Because it gives variations and you can see the different ways the Buddha taught mindfulness, not just this one sutta. Um, but anyway, so the this two ways of looking at the world, the way of looking at the world in terms of people and places and things, hey, that's a person, hey, that. It's always going to be um, disappointing to us. You know, as long as we focus on that, uh, we're, we're never going to be free from suffering. Or we can't be sure of being free from suffering, and suffering is always going to sneak up behind us because the, the realities of what's creating these concepts, what's behind these concepts, is, uh, is invisible to us. So because it's invisible, it's just a chance. Our, our chance and, and noticing patterns and this vague understanding of what's right and what's wrong that is, uh, you know, just gets uh, highly convoluted and confusing. I'm being very vague, but I hope you can see how this applies to religion and culture. Religion and culture tend to uh, arise not out of phenomenological understanding of reality, but conceptual understanding of people and places and things. And this is right and that's right. It's all based on on uh, estimations and, and patterns that we see vaguely through our our experiences. You know, when you see the same thing happen again and again, yes, you can get a sense of, of it conceptually. But even our knowledge of right and wrong conceptually is nothing like the knowledge that comes from seeing things phenomenologically, seeing experiences, uh, seeing how, how your own anger, your own greed, your own delusion, how it affects you clearly, moment by moment by moment. There's nothing, it's, it's a completely different realm. There was an article tonight I posted on Facebook, um, which is, uh, it's heartening. You know, it's heartening to see perhaps someone has practiced Buddhist mindfulness and snuck it into the scientific community, or maybe they just hit upon it. Uh, hard to believe. It's more likely that someone's been practicing mindfulness and snuck it in. But there was a, a study where uh, that said it focused on negative emotions but labeling uh, your it, it, I think that was even the word to use, labeling your negative emotions is one of the four uh, tricks or rituals that it may, that leads to happiness, backed by neuroscience, they said. So, neuroscience is, of course, the new buzzword in terms of mental health. But uh, they can focus on these parts of the brain, which is kind of silly. But 
Um, so they could see how when you label an emotion, you feel sad and you, you, you say, hey, that's sadness. Um, it, it, it frees you. It, it, it activates a part of the brain that shuts off the, the reaction, which uh, you know, is basically showing the br how in the brain mindfulness works. When you're mindful, this is what happens in your brain is basically what they're saying. They're not using the word mindfulness, but uh, they've done studies with fMRI um, where they, they had people label emotions and they could see the benefit. They were clear the way it uh, changes the state of the brain. That's interesting. And that's the uh, Satipatthana Sutta. Again, I highly encourage, if you're really interested in it, to check out the book, The Way of Mindfulness. It has the commentary and some sub-commentary added to it. So there you go. Um, summary of the Satipatthana Sutta and a little bit of discussion on ways of looking at the universe that hopefully help help us to understand uh, what we mean by being mindful a little bit better. On Wednesday I think we'll start on the Sabhasava Sutta which many of you should know I've I give many talks on, so we're going to go through each section of it because it's a good comprehensive practice. Uh, I'm happy to take suggestions on suttas that we can go through, but I probably won't take most of the suggestions. I'm only really interested in suttas that can relate directly to uh, our practice of mindfulness. Not because other suttas are bad or anything, but because... Uh, we're, we're a meditation center and it's for meditation students it has to be directly related to their practice so that's the Dhamma for tonight we'll go into taking questions Shiroma, you don't have to stay for this part this is just answering people's questions off the internet I've recently experienced recently I've experienced that I feel more and more inclined towards staying celibate even though I'm in a committed relationship if you have any advice for living in celibacy in the long run is it possible to do so or is it possibly better to separate from one's partner in due time what do you think of platonic friendships friendship between a man and a woman is it simply clinging, or is there something beneficial in such a friendship, possibly? Hmm. Well, I think friendship is good. Friendliness is good. Uh, I mean, friendship with good people. I mean, the question really is, why are you friends? Um, I mean, that sounds kind of, I guess, un insensitive, but sometimes we're friends with people because they, uh, they, they make us they cultivate sensual enjoyment, right? They make us laugh, say, or uh, maybe we have debates about philosophy and, and 
they make us think a lot and that kind of thing or maybe because we we uh, argue or maybe because we like to go out drinking together for example right all not very good reasons if if they're the kind of person who who encourages you and challenges you spiritually then I think that's really good friendship if you find someone who can help you who by staying with them your practice improves and that's I think a really good thing uh, I suppose another kind of friendship is is the 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 kind of support that that people give each other in terms of livelihood meaning uh, helping working together to stay alive working together to support a household that kind of thing so I mean I think marriage is really good for that being married to someone uh, from a lay perspective gives you that stability and, and or can you know and can in a functional sense be be in some ways better than being single um, I mean better than being single maybe not really it it can be because you know you have the other person to rely upon and and you can work together as a team um, I mean the real way it's better than being single is when a person is single and, and going out on dates with many different people and having romantic activity with lots of people um, but but so and that relates to your question the, the question of whether it's better to be alone I don't know that it's better to be alone per se I mean it's better to be surrounded by people who are meditating rather than be a surround be associated with someone who just happens to be someone you like uh, someone you're attached to so I mean if you did go off on your own it's a question of how you how your your practice would progress of course the internet makes it a lot easier there are ways to connect with other Buddhists um, so no I mean I don't think there's I think it's still better for you to be on your own because of course then you only have to deal with your own conditions but it really depends on the the, the it's better to be alone than to be with someone who is not meditating let's say someone who is who you feel is just you can you can experience is just leading you to be less mindful is is taking away from your mindfulness um, but if you can be surrounded by people who are meditating and who are mindful and who do challenge your spirit, I think that's better than being alone. And the Buddha said that sort of thing as well. How to use a mantra when having a conversation talking? When I use talking, talking, it interferes with talking. If not used, I don't even know what I'm saying. Mostly end up saying something I never meant to say. I don't know about talking because that's not the experience. The experience is of, I mean it's kind of is, but the experience is the feeling of the lips. You can say feeling, feeling. You can say it in between the talking. You can also note thinking and emotions that arise. How do you use a mantra when listening to Dhamma talks? I can use listening, listening during worldly talks. Hearing, hearing is, is you can note it, note the sound at the ear, but it's not something you have to do all the time and get get obsessed about. Do it in between, and then you can do both. 
how to use a mantra when reading Dhamma books. That's more difficult because your mind is, is conceptually occupied. I mean, it is with talking as well, so it can be done in between. When you're reading the Dhamma books, emotions are going to arise like boredom or, or tiredness or desire when you want something else. and Note it then. Or in between, note the pain in the body or the feeling or the sitting and so on. Our mind is very quick. We can do many different things, chop, 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 moment after moment. So it's kind of like multitasking. You can still be mindful in between. The Buddha, when the Buddha would give a talk, the people would would say sadhu when he gave a talk. So they, when they liked something he said, they would say, oh, that's sadhu, that kind of thing. And when they said sadhu, the Buddha, during their, the time they said sadhu, the Buddha would enter into Nibbana, apparently. And then uh, when they finished saying sadhu, he would come out and he would keep talking. Means he would enter into a cessation experience. That's that there's a common Masi Sayadaw mentions that I think at some point. Are the four foundations of mindfulness in the order of importance? No, not order of importance, but I think there's an argument to be made for order of um, order of progression in the sense that you start with the body and move on from there. I mean, when you're when you're into the practice, you go back and forth between all four of them. But the body is very basic. The feelings, a little less so. The mind is the most is com more complex, and the dhammas are really more advanced. Um, but you 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 don't. You don't uh, ever let go of You always go back to the body Because it's the most basic So it's the one you should start with I think But I wouldn't take that too seriously And and doesn't mean you should uh, Exclude any one of them at any time What is your take on metta, metta being used before or during vipassana? The Bojang is that mindfulness can balance the other faculties. What about metta? Can metta be used to stabilize the mind if there's too much aversion? Uh, yes, no, it can be used as a, a support. I wouldn't want to... I mean, I've said this before, it's a, it's a supportive meditation. So you can do it, but it's not going to solve your problems. It's not going to make you incapable of getting angry is the problem. The, you, you get angry because you have the idea you know, you have, you've cultivated the habit of anger and that comes from a concept that getting angry is somehow good and that won't be done away with through metta metta will only cure the result it'll shut down the anger when it comes but mindfulness a mindfulness even of the anger is what will allow you to see how bad anger is and allow you to change the habit and be less inclined to get angry in the future. Can you prove an example of an immaterial desire and are there immaterial rebirths? An example of an immaterial desire, I don't understand. Desiring the immaterial? Desiring something mental? Desiring something immaterial? Well, you want to suppose you want a job that's immaterial. That's a mental concept. Uh, suppose you want to be famous. That's an immaterial desire. And immaterial rebirths. Well, 
Um, apparently there are. But can I prove it? No. You can prove it. Just go and be reborn in one. Uh, me and some friend used an Ouija board, and somehow it actually worked. But how? Spirits answered all sorts of questions people in the group couldn't have possibly known. Thought when you die, your consciousness continues, but somehow it can remain in a more faint form. It's a testimony to how attachment operates. Um, right, so Ouija board is, I have no idea how it works. Uh, speculation I've used Ouija boards they're really really crazy so people would I guess say that um, the power of suggestion uh, were all uh, because the, the the force the physical force on the little thing is is very strong when you put lots of hands on it it's uh, it, it's only our um, our wishful thinking our unconscious desires that pushes it we, we push it around without knowing but um, in cases where as you say if it, I've never had that happen to me I don't think but if if it were possible that uh, it could actually give knowledge that none of you could possibly know you know that gets a little bit more sketchy how does that work I mean there are different potential possibilities maybe there are ghosts who, that are helping push it around but uh, it could also be your, the power of your own minds. You know, I was just reading tonight about some people who... It's apparently not a, a, a terribly uncommon thing where people have precognition. They experience something before it happens and, and that kind of thing. I mean, just the, the point being that the mind is more powerful than we think it is. It can be. It's not really under our control, which is why you don't see people... Um, doing magic tricks and being able to call it up at whim but in the right conditions, in the right situation it appears that the mind can be more powerful than we think I, I don't know, you'd want to look up and see the debunking sites How, what do the debunkers say about the Ouija board? I've never really heard of people getting answers that could be verified what you'd want to do is um, have one person write a number on a piece of paper uh, in another room and then ask the Ouija have not that that person stay back but have other people use the Ouija board and uh, ask it what the numbers were you know things like that that you can be, because if it's not concrete like that you have to wonder if there's other explanations but anyway I don't know I mean this isn't really Buddhist it's not really what we're all that interested in does living a wholesome life still consider wretched existence? Yes. Less wretched, perhaps. <laughs> I am meditating for months, and when I am in a public place or in between people, I started to see one thing. Any person I observe, it's like in one moment that is laughing, happy, another moment uh, angry, etc. Someone come to you and say something bad, he starts arguing. But who is that person really? Sorry, your English is, is not so 
hard, easy to understand, but that's not really your fault. Thank you for trying. Is this all about external event decide? Um, I don't really understand. But people change. I mean, it's it sounds like what you're seeing is something very good that, yeah, people as we know them don't exist. What exists are experiences and they're very chaotic. So this is why you see people changing is because the person, that entity, is just a illusion. The reality of it is there's many different conflicting habits that are going to come up at different times. In the Kalama Sutta where it says these qualities are praised by the wise, is it referring to enlightened beings or just anyone considered as wise in that society? Hmm. Wise is... What part is that? Make sure and which one's the Kalama Sutta? Where's the Kalama Sutta? It's in the Sangyutta, isn't it? No, oh, Anguttara, of course. It's in the Anguttara Book of Threes. 365. Nope. On the case of Putta Sutta, I think, or no? Kalama? No, it's not even that. 65? Case of Mutti Sutta, is that what it's called? Yeah. It's got many different names. Yeah, Kalama. Okay, what part does it say the wise? Is that in the whole list of things that you shouldn't? Ma anusoena me ma pitika ma Okay, right, here we are. It's in the good side. So these dhammas when you know for yourself these dhammas are akusala, these dhammas are unwholesome, these dhammas are sawajja or faulted, blameworthy. These dhammas are vinyugarahita, are censured by those who know clearly. What does it refer to? Well, I mean, the commentary will probably have something to say. I'll look at that in a second, but let's just be clear. It doesn't really have to say anything. It doesn't have to be referring to anyone. What it means is someone who knows the truth censures it, right? It's the difference between someone saying... Uh, about something that's right, that it's wrong, and something that's saying about something that's wrong, that it's wrong because they know that it's wrong. The meaning is, this is wrong, so that anyone who knows the truth, a winyu, winyu just means someone who knows, right, um, thinks it's wrong. So it doesn't have to be referring to anyone, it's just saying anyone who knows the truth knows that this is wrong. So it's that's that's when we should... Um, that's when we should take something to be true is when we know it's wrong and so because we know it's wrong we know that anyone who knows knows it's wrong does that make sense? but let's see what the commentary says I mean uh, presumably it refers to an arahant because an arahant is one who knows 
it doesn't refer to it. No, it doesn't give a definition, but I don't think it needs to. It's a problem with an English translation or a Sri Lankan translation is often it blurs the the actual words. And clearly here, the Vinyu Garahita just means you know, these are wrong, so anyone who knows the truth will blame them. These are blame, blamed by anyone who knows anything. And, and that's... Um, uh, I mean, it's kind of a tautology in a sense. Or it's it's superfluous. You know, it's not really a necessary thing to say. It's not adding anything. It's just. Uh, I mean, it's useful. It's 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 rhetoric in the sense of saying these are wrong. So anyone who knows anything knows that they're wrong. Those who know will blame it. Blame it. Of course they will because it's wrong. Right. So hopefully I haven't beaten that dead horse too much. Uh, okay, Mahasi Sayada wrote When in your thoughts you meet a person not meeting Should you speak to him arguing? Is this different from what you advocate? It's just thought No, that's fine You can uh, I know that part and it does seem a little bit ex excessive to me But um, no, it's fine You know, Ajahn Tong even said there was this woman and uh, she was trying to wriggle out of it. She had real problems and he said, uh, she she said, I, I, you know, well, she was, the backstory is she was uh, bulimic, I think, or uh, bulimic, I think. And so she would eat and then she would throw up and she had real problems. And she said, uh, I, I, you know, I th I, I'm throwing up. And he said, then say to yourself, throwing up, throwing up. And she said, uh, you know, I want to throw up. And she said, wanting to throw up, wanting to throw up. And uh, and she said, I just want to die. And he said, wanting to die, wanting to die. He said, I don't want to live. And he said, not wanting to live, not wanting to live. And she started laughing. And yeah, it was really funny how he he, he just no matter what she said, he was he was like acknowledge it, acknowledge it. And she ended up she ended up becoming a nun and really helped herself. I mean, the idea is you can really note anything. The point is to create this objectivity in the mind where you're no longer reacting to it. So if you're arguing with someone in your mind, the point is to acknowledge that that's all it is. You know, arguing, arguing, instead of hey, this is bad, this is good, this is me, this is mine. It is what it is. I would like to see the Burmese and get a literal translation of the Burmese. I don't know enough Burmese. I don't know any Burmese. But um, it is a little bit. I, w I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that's my favorite part of that that uh, text. And I wouldn't be all that concerned with going as far as he said. And my teacher certainly didn't. Uh, you know, generally advocate for such things. It would more just be about saying thinking, thinking, keep it simple.
Through the monk in the picture to the left of Ajahn Tong and Mahasi is behind you. The other monk is Lumpo Chodok. I just happen to have his picture, but as I think about it, he is probably number three for me. I mean, there are other monks, but he is number three because he's um, really the third biggest influence uh, for me in Buddhism. I mean, besides, of course, the Buddha, but as far as monks go, as far as I can think, He's number three because he 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 was he's not the best teacher, but he was the most prolific in his his discourses. He was he, he was unique in that um, not only did he teach, but he also studied, or he studied a lot before he came to practice meditation. So he had a lot of background knowledge, and so his talks would be right on point all the time about meditation. He was the one who said when you listen to me give a talk, just say hearing, hearing, hearing. But uh also full of of info, information. So a lot of the information that I give, uh that side of things is from him. You know, he would say things and I'd go and look them up and I certainly haven't haven't gone through everything he taught taught, but uh I went through a lot and, and would pick out it helped me direct my own studies because everything was related to the practice so really a great teacher all around so worth having up on the shelf for sure Lumpa Chodok Chodok is the Thai I was trying to think what it would be in Pali it's Jotaka I think Jotika or Jotaka probably Jotaka Jotaka would have been his Pali name I think Chodok Jotaka I'm not sure what it means Or Chodok could be No, no it's, it's definitely Jotaka Can you recommend any books that complement Manual of Insight? I wouldn't recommend the Manual of Insight for anyone unless they're you know, really done a lot of intensive practice in this tradition. Maybe you have. Um, but I hear a lot of people asking me about this book, and it's kind of disconcerting because, well, I mean, I'm sure the people who wrote it had different ideas, who, who translated it and put it on Amazon had different ideas. I mean, I'm glad they did because I can get it, but... But then it's the kind of book that someone like me could perhaps use. But I mean, I guess a lot of it isn't that. But there's there is stuff in here about the stages of insight. I think that I'm not sure that everyone should be reading. And it's not the kind of thing you'd really want to read before you'd done at least a foundation course, and hopefully a sort of a review course where you actually go through the stages of knowledge. Otherwise, it uh, potentially get in the way. So, uh, as far as complimenting, I don't know. I mean, I'd rather people would be more interested in the the simpler stuff, you know, as far as study goes. I don't know. I mean, so maybe this person asking has really done a lot of intensive practice. Um, the only thing really that would go better than then the manual of insight then is things like the common to the Visuddhimagga and of course the suttas I mean you can't do 
better than reading all of the the Sutta Pitaka. And uh, you know, if you've already done that, well, then read it again. All right, that's all the questions. Thank you all for coming out. Have a good night.